0: 2009 like I said this week uh, we are going to be doing all episodes from December uh, in sequential order starting with the oldest one being today I didn't pull one from 08 which was the first year of the podcast Uh, this is 2009 again December 22nd Uh, this being the 20th it's almost exactly uh, an anniversary episode from all the way back in 09 which is pretty cool uh, there's some other things about this episode I wanted to point out before we, we go back there. Number one, this is the second to the last episode that I did in my car. Episode uh, 343, a listener feedback episode on the 23rd, was the last episode I ever did before I went full time and stayed home and left my old corporate life behind. So I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, It is a cool episode. It's about evaluating property. You're going to hear a lot of... So this is a 2009, right? So uh, it was 12 years, 13 years ago. This is 13 years old at this point. You're going to hear a lot stay exactly the same as what I recommend today, including things like sometimes if you really can't find a place that you can afford, maybe the place isn't the right place to be in the first place. I think that's more true than ever now, is more and more, let's just say problems, have spread across our country, and there's certain places, I just don't think that people who want freedom really need to be living. I, I think you should be able to live anywhere you want, but if you want freedom, you're kind of cutting your nose off to spite your face. Uh, the other thing about this is, so it was done in the car, so the audio is the crappy audio from the beginning, and then here's something that new people will have no knowledge of. Not too long after this point, when I took the show full-time and I really needed to be able to make a living on it, um, the company that I was using for hosting at the time, totally different company than who I have now, in fact, it's why I have the company I have now, shut off my server in the middle of the night. Uh, About 7 o'clock at night, while I was out cooking chicken on my grill, they shut my server off, and they said, you're using too much even though I was supposed to have unlimited, whatever that meant. And I went in this big fight, and it took me to like 2 o'clock in the morning to get them to turn it back on. And then I had like a month to get off the server. And what I ended up doing is a, a way to kind of absorb the the bandwidth that was eating away at this, this company tolerating me. is so I took my old episodes... And I re-rendered them with more compression at 16kbps versus 32kbps, which became my standard. 32kbps is FM standard radio uh, quality, and I thought that's good enough for a talk show. So it even has a little bit of a tinniness. So it's an old episode, but I think you'll really enjoy It is definitely a trip down memory lane. Going all the way back now to December twenty second, 2009, these... Uh, Rewind episodes during my time away for the holiday are not really commercial in nature, but I just will remind you, like... It really is an easy thing when you're shopping online from uh, this point forward uh, to start your online shopping at tspaz.com, where you can see all my reviews. And even if you don't buy something from those reviews, as long as you start there, you help out the show and the work that we do. And it doesn't take you but a couple extra seconds to do it. So please consider that. With that, let's go ahead and rewind back. December the 22nd, 2009. Originally, Episode 342, Alternative Ways to Evaluate Property. Another day. Hi, folks, this is Jack Spierkoe with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, it's almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. At least for a couple more times, I'm going to be saying that. Uh, Today is Tuesday. December 22nd, 2009. This is episode 342 of the Survival Podcast. Today we're going to talk about unconventional thoughts about real estate and buying land. We did a lot of land stuff yesterday, made me remember how big of an interest there is, how big of a dream there is of owning your own little homestead, or your own bug out location, or your own 40 acres, or anything in between there uh, is for a lot of my listeners. So I decided that this time of year, good time you know, between Christmas and New Year's when you're home, to be sitting online and browsing properties, at least just getting some ideas. Remember, I always said about real estate, the the beautiful thing about real estate is shopping is free. And shopping is your education. If you constantly shop for real estate, I didn't say buy, I said shop, you'll learn any part of the country that you want to, what going property rates are, and you'll be able to watch properties, and the ones that you think are priced right, when you watch them sit for 90 to 120 days, you'll realize they're not priced right in the current market. They might have been priced beautifully. Two years ago. It's not two years ago now. Things change with real estate, and we'll be talking about that and some other things today. But with that, let's go ahead and get on talking about land. And there's a couple reasons that I did this. One was all the land questions that I got in the last week, uh, which I already mentioned. But the other was last night I was having uh, a couple drinks with uh, one of my business partners. And um, I had one of, uh, we'll call her uh, uh, kind of one of our... Uh, our students, let's say that. We're kind of both a mentor to this person uh, that works in one of the businesses that I'm now separating myself from. Um, and we were sitting having some drinks, and we were talking about money and devaluation of money. And this this lady's pretty smart, but she doesn't know about things like the Federal Reserve and things like that. So one of the things I did last night is I showed her the little notation on a $1 bill that said this this note is legal tender. It's not money. It's not currency, right? It's a certificate for debt. And it was really eye-opening for her. She's like, oh, wow. And and then we started talking about it, right? And and, um, my partner's like, well, you know, there's only so much that you can worry about doing about that. I said, well, the first thing is to be aware. And then the second thing is to convert cash that is eroded by inflation into, you know, things that don't get eroded by inflation, They have lasting intrinsic value, like gold, like silver, like real estate. And he actually pushed back on it, which is funny because the first person that made me really understand real estate in a new way was this guy. And I think he was just in a different mindset last night. And he was actually, when he was arguing with me, he was arguing with his own points from three years ago, which was kind of funny to watch. And I I let it go because I, you know, Wanted to be a productive, enjoyable uh, dinner conversation, not a not a a, a big heated debate. But one of the points that I made is when you and this this totally came from him. When you buy real estate, when you buy a piece of property, if you own it, if it's paid for, it would be common sense to say, well, if the value of real estate declines, it's bad. Right so I bought a house let's say for $200,000 and the whole real estate market like it has takes a big hit almost everywhere across the country and the value of my property goes from 200,000 to 150,000. Now most people would say I've lost $50,000. And if you bought the property As a source of income, as a source of buy and hold to sell later, uh, or bought it as a rental property and now your rental rates have gone down, yes, you've lost money. If it's your property you live on, you really haven't lost a penny. In fact, you probably have gained... I'll tell you how you may have gained. It's very difficult, but it can be done. If the property value truly drops, especially below your tax assessor's assessment, you can go challenge the tax assessor's assessment with comparable sales in your area and challenge that the market value of your property has decreased and you may be able to get your property taxes reduced. Don't bet the farm on it, so to speak, but it can and has been done. So that's that's one way that you would, you know, they say, well, okay, I saved, $500 a year in property taxes or $800 a year in property taxes, something like that, right? How big a deal is that, Jack? I've just lost $50,000. Have you? Have you really? If you got rid of the house you're living in now, where would you go? Well, duh, you'd get another place to live, right? If the cost of housing, now I'm not saying, like, let's let's be clear here. I'm not saying that you live in this one place, and you want to leave this one place, and this one place had something really bad happen. Somebody built a big industrial plant there and, and, and depressed your property values individually. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that what we've just had happen, happened. Property values decreased all across the country. Fairly uniformly, except on the left and right coast where people are crazy, right? The middle of America is pretty uniform. You haven't lost anything because if you sell your home for 150. When you go to replace it, a comparable home, just about anywhere in a similar situation, will still cost you 150 You could still exchange like for like. You haven't really lost because you live there. Now, if you own 10 of them and they're part of a real estate investor's portfolio, you've lost the $50,000 10 times over. You're half a million in the hole. That is true. That is absolutely true. But for the home that you own and live in, especially if you plan on being there long term, as in most or all of your life, because it's your dream, and it's what you want to transform into something that provides for you, doesn't matter if the property value goes down. It's paid for. You own it. It's done. Right. The only way this doesn't work is when you have a big, giant, huge, lingering debt over top of it, and you want to leave. Because now you've got to come up with the cash delta to get out from underneath it. But if you go in and buy property strong, save up and buy strong 20% or more equity from day one, save the PMI, put that back into the payment, make a commitment, pay the property off in 10 years or less, it could, the, 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 you can take the hit almost anywhere in there after two to three years if you're making those extra payments, and you can still get out and exchange like for like. The math works out. So I want you to take a new dynamic at the way you look at real estate property values and, and saying, well, you know, it's, it's good to buy when the market's down or when the market's up. It's good to buy when you find the property that fits you and your lifestyle, and you can afford it safely. And by afford it safely, I mean if you get into this property somebody blows up your place of work and you lose your job and you don't have your job for a year at the end of the year you're still in that property one way or another that's when you can afford that property without that you can't afford it yet get yourself into that state Right? And it's not that hard. If you have a prop if you have a house payment of roughly a thousand dollars, that's a twelve thousand dollar cash emergency fund. Sounds like a lot of money if yours is zero right now. But if you commit to it, you can make it happen. Once you have that, well at least I can I can pay the mortgage. Right? You put up enough aside to pay the basic utility bills, another five hundred bucks, right? So you're talking about an eighteen thousand dollar emergency fund for a year, you can sit in that house. Now if you're a prepper, you can feed yourself for six months to a year in that house. If you're a prepper with a garden, easy you can feed yourself for six months to a year. And all of a sudden, property ownership becomes an asset again instead of the liability that our society has turned it into. Another thing that I think that people really need to get their head out of if they're a prepper is the mentality that most real estate people have that the best place to buy is a growing area. I don't think I need to say much about that to you guys because... Most of you want something a little bit remote, a little bit secluded. So the last thing you want is an area growing up around the place. But I think the problem with the growing area, thought, is if I find something that I like, and I like the way that it is today, if it's in a growing area, what I bought will change. Now, if I'm buying for the potential to resell the property in the future and it's going to change in a way that's going to increase property values, that is a good investment. At least it's a a solid reasoning behind the investment. It may not play out. It may not work. Things may go wrong. Murphy may show up and kick you dead square in the ass. In fact, that's what Murphy generally does. If you invite him into your life, and for those who don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about Murphy's Law here, if you invite Murphy into your life, he will generally generally show up at some point and kick you dead square in your ass or somewhere worse. All right? So... I'm not saying that it will pay off, but I understand the reasoning behind it. It makes sense. For me, when I'm looking at property, I'm looking for a place that I want to live and I want to stay and I want to be part of and I want to transform my way, and I don't want the surrounding area transforming in a way that changes what I've purchased from what I bought in the first place. I guess it's like getting married in a way when you buy property. When you get married... Um, I think at least men generally look at a woman and go, the reason I'm marrying her, she's exactly what I want they hope she doesn't change and the old joke is, then she does and then the woman always says, the guy's perfect except for these two things and if we could just change those so she marries him, hoping those two things will change, and of course, they don't because men pretty much stay what we are from, oh, I don't know, the time we uh, can get on our first bicycle until they put us in a hole in the ground men are pretty much what they are, ladies, so I, I, I really I really hope you understand you're not going to change the average guy from who he is at his core. Um, And I actually think the same is true about women. I think the same is absolutely true about women. And the reason men think women change is uh, they lie to themselves about what they're looking at. Okay, that's an aside, but it is good advice. Alright, so, I don't like property with the potential for a lot of change without at least doing some tracking down of the variables. Yesterday, we talked about a guy looking at buying a a square piece of property, two acres, up in the high desert, owned, properties owned by other people on three sides of it. Nothing's built there. It's vacant. Not necessarily a bad thing, but I would want to contact the property owners to see what their intentions are with the property before I made my decision, right? Because that could have a big impact on what the place is going to look like five years from now instead of today, after I put all my effort into it. And maybe I want a lot of houses around me. Maybe I'm looking for a rural community with houses on two-acre lots and up. And that might be exactly what I want. But And that's the big thing. Through the rest of this, I want you to think about this. I'm now going to go into a list of things that I look for with a property when I go to buy it. It's not important whether you agree or not. It's important that you understand my reasoning and my logic, and when you agree with something, you put it on your list. When you disagree with something, you put a point that counters that point on your list and say, well, what I want is, when you look at buying property, and this is why I get a little bit miffed with some of the attitudes of, uh, I guess, the prepared-minded industry, uh, some of the survivalist industry where they say, well, you know, property has to be up in a mountaintop, and it has to be this, and if it's anywhere near this certain type of road, and these 15 states are just out of the question, and you know what, they don't live there, you do. Nothing could be more personal than a piece of property you buy, so if what you want is a suburban neighborhood in Dallas, fine, I don't want it, that's what I'm getting rid of, mine. I'll sell you one, a great one, I'll sell you one of the best ones you can get in a mid-priced home. And and that's what you want. So that's what I want you to take away from this list. Not so much the things that I think are important, but where do you line up with me? Make those part of your list. And as you're shopping for properties, try to find properties that fit as many of the criteria on your list, and then do a healthy dose of reality. Can you afford all that? If not, what are you willing to compromise with first? What can you create later if you get the right property? Things like that. All right. So, one of the first things that I look at with property is, is there natural water available on the property, one way, shape, or another? And that has a lot of different ways that that can be the case. The two best ones, right, would be a full-time, year-round creek or a pond or a lake. Either one of those, and I've got a jackpot, right? Year-round creek, man, I can do a lot with that. I can create, you could actually use the creek's pressure to create a mechanical pump. I can't remember what it's called now, but where the creek will actually pump the or a spring will do the same thing, pump the water uphill using only the pressure of the water. I can't remember what that kind of pump's called, uh, but I've seen them built, and they're pretty cool. And they just sit there, and they'll pump a couple gallons, you know. Uh, an hour or more up a hill, up a pretty steep hill over a long distance. And, uh, you know, it's not going to be something that you're generally going to be uh, getting enough flow to take a shower under, but if you have a storage facility that you can pump the water to, it'll do all the work for you and it works 24 7. So that would be great. A lake, not quite the same capabilities, but you can pump water with an electric pump. You can use the water directly. You can use the water to grow things in, like a fish pond. So those two things are optimal. But they may not be the only way that you can get natural water on a piece of property and still have value out of it. For instance, I have what I would call a seasonal creek along the backside of my property line in Arkansas. Water running there is about a nine month out of the year proposition. The driest parts of the summer, it dries up. Now, by doing things like impounding it, I can keep water in that area probably all but maybe one month out of the year where it will finally be completely gone. It's shaded in. I'm not going to have a lot of evaporation from any kind of impoundment. So I can go in there and I can impound and create, let's say, a little small area of about... a. I don't know, probably a 20th of an acre is what I have planned to eventually kind of hold back of that water supply. And that will still allow water to flow out down to the rest of the neighbors and things like that. So that's kind of another one. Now, what if you don't have any of that? Well, can you put a well in? A well is extremely advantageous. What kind of flow rates can you expect from the well? You've got to talk to people that put wells in, in your area, what, what, what kind of flow do they get out of their well, people that have active ones running. Talk to companies that drill wells. Just because the neighbor said, I got my well put in for $2,500, and he's only 50 yards down the road or whatever, doesn't mean you're going to get your well put in for $2,500 too. Your well might cost $8,000. You might have a big rock slab under your house that's not under his. He might be looking like he's just a little little bit up the hill but the underwater reservoir may be on a different angle and you might have to go 200 feet deeper than he did to get down to the water table you really don't know these things until you talk to somebody that's a professional well installer unless the well's the well's already there great then you want to know what's the flow rate out of the well you know that's that's really about it at that point how how what's the quality of the water We were fortunate the well was already there on our property. But if you have to have it put in, what's it going to cost? I've seen plenty of wells cost $10,000 or more. That's a lot of money. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying it's not worth it. It's worth every penny to have a a, a basically limitless supply of water available that you don't have to pay a monthly bill on. It's a great thing. It's extremely uh, driving you toward that independence goal but natural water sources. How much rainwater harvesting can be done on your property? This is where you start looking at the way the land lays. You really want your house to be on a relatively high point on your property. Not always the case. Um, My house isn't at the highest point on the property, not at the lowest point. It's not optimal. It's not where I would have put it if I built it. I didn't build it. I kind of have to live with it the way that it is, but why is that so important when I talk about water harvesting? One of the greatest water harvesting tools that you will ever have is the roof of your home. The entire surface area of that roof can be channeled to harvest water and, and, and move it somewhere. Now, the higher up your house is, the more you can do with moving water further out onto your property off of your roof. Instead of maybe having a bunch of tanks around your house full of water, you might have multiple tanks dispersed throughout your your property, and then you're using the natural slope of the ground to move that water from your house out to those remote tanks. And there's some pretty cool, creative ways I've seen that done. And even moving it as little as 20 or 30 yards away from the house on you know, a mid-sized piece of property, a few acres, can have a huge impact on your ability to use that water for irrigation purposes, especially if the slope continues, and then you can be moving that water from that tank further downhill for irrigation purposes. So that's a big thing that I look at that I don't think a lot of other people do, is where's the house in relation to the slopes on the property beyond just it's in a good place where it won't flood. Even though I'm not on the highest place, my house isn't going to flood. I have no concerns about that whatsoever. You know, if it was down in the bottom of the valley, I'd be worried about that. So that's generally not a problem because most people have build houses have some clues to what they're doing. But how you can disperse rainfall collection, especially if you live in an area that gets a lot of rainfall, yeah, you know, if you're in the in the eastern United States, you probably get plenty of rainfall. You can harvest tens and tens of thousands of gallons. And you also have to look at water rights in your state and do you live in a place like Colorado where a lot of homeowners will get in trouble for putting a rain barrel in their backyard. So you have to look at that as well, especially if you're choosing a place to move to from a different part of the country. Will you be able to do the same practices in that new area uh, that you did in the old one that you've become accustomed to in things like water harvesting and other things as well? The next thing I look at... With a piece of property that I don't think many people would look at, this is the permaculture bug in me. How many microclimates can I create, and how large can I make those microclimates? You can create microclimates in any place in the world. Honestly, any suburban neighborhood is going to have microclimates. There's going to have a side of a a property that gets more sun exposure and a side that gets less, and I have cool areas that I can grow things like uh, lettuces with with shade and diffused sunlight in the summer where. If I put them out in the main sun, they'll bake and they'll bolt, and I just won't get good results. And I'll have heavy solar exposure where I can grow sun-loving crops, and I have heavy solar exposure maybe reflected off a brick wall of a house. And if I get a good solar exposure on that you know, side of the home, uh, the south side of that wall, let's say, throughout the day, I can often plant things on that side of that house that will be able to get through winter that normally don't survive winters in the particular climate that I'm in because the wall reflects the heat all day long from the sun and then the wall retains and radiates the heat after the sun goes down. So I might be able to move one zone up with certain citrus plants by utilizing that microclimate in a suburban area. And even in suburban lots, if I have a bigger suburban lot with more space between the homes, I have more potential for microclimates like that to either exist or be created. Now, when I go out, I start looking at two, three, four-acre properties. This is why I'm looking for some portion of that property to be wooded. This is why I'm looking for certain elevation changes. This is why I'm looking for some pieces of the property to maybe be pretty rocky. Because all of these things allow me to create microclimates. If I create a rock shelf against the sunshine uh, side of the hill, I can grow heat-loving plants, again, maybe one, two, or even more zones higher than they normally grow in. If I can create shaded environments in a very moist climate, then I can grow some things that are maybe more of a tropical plant, at least during the warm parts of the year, that normally wouldn't survive under, let's say, the Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana sun. There's just so many things that I can do if I can create m- multiple microclimates. And then if I, once I have the microclimates, even if I don't create them, they're just there. All I have to do now is start examining different types of useful plants and go, what climate do they prefer? And that instead of just sitting down with a piece of paper to design my property and saying, well, I want this here and that there, I say, what are, what are these microclimates like? And then I give the plants the microclimate they want. That's what it's all about when you're building out permanent uh, food sources that continue to exist for time and time again, that you find the area that's right for the plant and put it there, rather than put it over here because you think it looks pretty. And it will die every year. You have to replant it where maybe if you put it somewhere else, it would actually be able to survive even through your winter or in some cases the other way around through your summer. These are different ways to think about property. That's why I said it's alternative ideas when evaluating real estate that we're talking about today. Next thing I look at, what species of wildlife are abundant? What animals naturally live in the area that I can make part of my plan? Um... I have a reasonable deer supply where I, our place is in Arkansas. Not an excessive deer supply. Excessive would actually be a problem. The mountain's pretty rugged. There's only so much available to the deer up there. So it's a sparsely populated whitetail population. They're not hunted heavily. A lot of the people that live there um, are outdoorsmen, uh, but they don't hunt. Or they just don't choose to hunt in their own backyard. So I have a reasonable supply of unhunted whitetails that are sufficient in number that I can harvest a couple a year, and that's deer meat for the freezer, and it's biltong hanging in the house. But on the other side, the population's not so heavy that I'm going to have to deer fence my entire garden. Where in some areas, that would absolutely be the case. There's some areas in Maryland right now where you throw a baseball into a a tree lot anywhere in suburbia, and you'll probably hit a deer. So it's not always good to have wildlife. Right? Or it's not always good to have certain wildlife in certain numbers in certain situations. So if you have plans to do something with a property, you have to know how wildlife does or does not fit into that plan. And in some ways, that's why the suburbanite with a six-foot wood privacy fence surrounded by major roads has an advantage if you want to be an urban farmer. Because the deer ain't coming there. You know and there's a lot of suburban places that have deer problems but they 're not like the one I just described so you have to look at the wildlife you have to look at things like you know squirrel populations how do they fit into what you 're going to be planning to do generally I find the squirrels leave my gardens alone no problem whatsoever stay out of there from I would say about March. Into about late November here in Texas. Right now they dig in everything because they're burying nuts and they're looking for nuts the other one buried. Even though I'm feeding them, there's tons of black oil out there, black oil sunflower. Nope, they got to take their acorns and plant them in every container I have and all my beds. They dig up my lettuce plants not to eat them because they don't care that it's a lettuce plant. They just want to dig a hole there, so they're actually a bit of a problem. In the uh, summertime, they raid my peach trees. I'm willing to live with that, are you? You know, are you, If you're not, are you willing to control the population of squirrels? Right? And those are just two wildlife examples. There's all types of wildlife that can be attracted to property. My view is most of it's positive, especially if I live in a state with li- liberal bag limits that allows me to selectively harvest a good population of them every year and make them part of my protein regime. I call wildlife that exists on my property... Um, Unsupported livestock is the term I've come up with. I might put some things out to attract them, and in some areas I may put some things out to repel them. But day-to-day, I don't have to take care of them. If I go away for three weeks, they're still there. You know, they'll take care of themselves. And if I want them as a protein source, they're available to me. And I guess it helps me as a hunter. I don't form that bond that you do with your conventional livestock where, man, I've got to kill you now. I really don't uh, look at them, look at me. I don't want to do this. You, you'll you do it. But but there's, there's a little bit of remorse in any chicken keeper's heart when he takes a chicken, especially if he's not really a meat breeder, but it's just like he's a guy that, that has dual-purpose birds, and this one's kind of reached its fruition, and it's time for it to go to make room for new ones. And, okay, you know, I'm going to honor you by eating you, basically, there's still a little bit of sadness there. Where, I don't know, for me, for for uh, for wildlife, it's like, you know, you have a chance to get away, and it's a hunt, it's not a kill. And it's a different thing there. So that's just me personally. Again, everything here that I'm telling you today, you have to look at it um, from your own standpoint of what you really want. But I really look at wildlife and how it's abundant and is it abundant in a way that's helpful or harmful to my goals. Um, The next thing I look at is what things on this property exist today that would take me 10 10 or more years to create. So when I stand and I look at a piece of property that has hickories and oaks on it and I can't put my arms around them and these are trees that are 30 or 40 years old, those trees have an almost unlimited value to me, because I, I could, you know, if I plant a little hickory today, odds are I'll be dead by the time it looks like that. So I can't replace that. And there may be other things on the property that would take that long or longer for you to create, and if that's the case, they increase the value of the property to you, assuming one, have I said, you can afford it, you can afford the property. That's that's rule one, and number two, you plan to be there a long time. You do that, and then these things start to add some real intrinsic value, at least to you. It might be a pond, right? Let's say you're looking at two pieces of property. They're both $125,000. One has a one-acre pond on it. One does not. If you really want a pond, and a one-acre pond in that area is going to cost you $15,000 to put in. And you don't have the funding to add the pond, well, it might take you 10 years to get the funding and get ready and be prepared to install the pond. So you're shortcutting everything by 10 years and paying the same amount of money. All right? That's just one example, and that's a pretty obvious one. That's why I chose it. But I want you to understand that when you look at property, you have to, you do have to see the, what it could become, but you also have to see the things that are going to take 10 years or more. And if something's going to take 10 years or more, and you're looking at relatively like properties, and one has those things and the other does not, the one that has them is the way to go. right? If you have too many trees, it's easy to take some down. If you don't have enough trees, it takes a long time, especially in temperate climates, to grow a lot more of them to the size where they're useful. So you do have to think about the things that take more than a decade to create. I also really do, I mentioned this earlier, but I really look a lot at how the land lays, and I'm not looking for what most people are. Most people are looking for as flat as they can possibly find, or maybe one little gentle rise just for kind of an overlook from the house, but generally flat land is considered more valuable than hillier mountainous land. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not looking for cliffs, and I actually think that in many ways my personal property in Arkansas is steeper on some areas than I would like it to be. But it it, it works for me, and it's sufficient. There's enough of it that lays in particular ways where I can use the slope to my advantage because it's gradual, kind of up at the top side, and then it drops, and then it's gradual again. Um, But that's important to me. If I have completely flat land, anywhere I want water to move, I have to move it with some kind of mechanical action. Now, again, I might have pressure from a creek or a spring that can be used to make that happen with no direct energy input, but even then I can only do so much with that. I can only push the water to a location. I can't redistribute it well. If I have slopes, even if I use mechanical action to get water up to one of the highest parts of the property, once that water's there, I can now distribute it using gravity to multiple locations. I can use automatic timers and things like that. So I'm a lot more concerned about having some level of slope that's usable. I'm also concerned where can I put swales in and do natural water harvesting so that the water stays there long term and helps build, you know, basically a food forest out of a swale system. Not sure if I'm going to be able to actually pull that off with the property that I have to work with, but I'm damn sure going to try. But if I had, you know, somebody just said, Jack, here's half a million dollars. Go buy any property you want. I'd probably spend 200 of it, you know, and and put the other three in the bank and not tell the guy that gave me the half million. But these are the things that I would be looking for, right? These are the types of things that I would want. Again, I want you to take what you want, add it to your list. Take what you don't want, get it off. Think your own way. The next thing I want to know, and I think this is so important, I think this is so overlooked. What are the people like that live around you? The the larger uh, macro community and the smaller micro community both. What I mean by that is there's probably a city or a town or something around the area Um That's close to you Where you will do your shopping And things like that Uh, Even if you're way out in the sticks There's some place like that Where you're going to get your supplies Unless you're way, way out there And then it probably doesn't even matter Because you're alone And that's probably what you want And that's okay if that's what you want But for everybody else What's that town like? If you're a church-going person, what type of churches are there? You might go, there's churches everywhere here. Well, are you Lutheran, Methodist, Baptist, what have you? You might find that there's uh, only one church of your particular persuasion. I don't find that to be that important, but I know that many people do. They like to have choices. They like to be able to go to a couple different churches and find one they really like. And there are certain denominations that they will go to and some, they, some that they won't. Again, I, I really could care less about that. right? I, it's not my thing. But if it's your thing, you better look at it. What type of stores are available? Are you a shopper? You know, I don't think you should be an excessive shopper, but if you're shopping within your means and buying things that you like and you can afford it and you're not going into debt, shop your brains out. What's available in the area? Right. Is there, if it's important to you to not only grow and produce your own food, but buy from local agriculture? Are there local farmers markets and are there uh, local CSA pr- programs where you can, you know, make that commitment fulfilled to yourself to buy off the local economy? Are there people that actually produce things there? So that's the that's the the macro climate, the big area. You know, let's say the the 10 to 20 mile radius around your piece of property. And then there's the micro-community. These are the people that if you walk down your road, you'll wave to, that you'll see, that you'll get to know on a first-name basis. What are they like? What's acceptable and unacceptable behavior? One of the biggest things I was looking for at our place in Arkansas was the ability to shoot a gun in my backyard and not have the police show up. So I was standing out there discussing that with the real estate agent. She says, I don't think there'll be any problem here. I said, Well, I'm going to go talk to these guys. And I ended up talking to them anyway. But it was kind of funny. Right at that moment, the guy that lives way up on the top of the hill, his name's Scott, uh, was out there with his uh, with one of his kids. And I hear boom, 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 boom. And it was really kind of suppressed because he's way the hell up the hill, but he was shooting. And I went, oh, that answers that question. And she's like, you know, so many people get turned off when they hear that. I just cringe when I hear that sound when I'm showing a property to somebody and I'm not sure how they're going to react to it. And I turned to her and I said, "Uh, you know what, you'll be a better real estate agent if you get the answer to that question in advance and show people a property where they'll get what they're looking for rather than hope that they don't know that it's that way and then move them in here and then that person wants to change the community. And that's my message there. You don't move into community. Communities to change them. You move into communities to adapt to them. Moving into community to change things, right? That is that is the the, the uh the Solinsky model, right? That's a revolution for radical model. If you want to be out there uh, and be willing to have the ability to put a, a deer feeder up in your backyard and bring deer in and squirrels in occasionally, maybe shoot one of them, set up a little rifle range and go out there on Sunday afternoons and do some reloading and do some targeting shooting and things like that, then find a place where that's acceptable. Likewise, if you don't want people around you doing that for whatever reason you have, don't move to a place that's already like that expect to change it because you're going to get a real hard, heavy resistance from the people that live there, and you should. So it's very important to me to know the people and the community that I'm moving into, both on the macro layer, which is important, and then at the micro layer, which is extremely important. All right. next one is, and I've got heat for this because I'm a libertarian, so I'm not supposed to think this way. Well, I do, and I'm sorry if you don't like it. Nobody from the Libertarian Party ever called me up and told me I wasn't allowed to have independent thought. I don't know. Some of you guys, I just don't know. I think you're more damaging to libertarianism than you are helpful when you get so Nazi-esque with, I'm a bigger libertarian than him. I, I, I don't get you. But it is, is there public land nearby? Are there national parks, state forests? Um, Is there, uh, uh, you know, walk-in wildlife management properties? Is there any place with large amounts of open woodlands that I can go use for recreational purposes? That's very important to me. And the way I look at it as a libertarian is the money was taken from me without my consent. I might as well use what they've created with it because they finally created something that was useful, and that was by doing virtually nothing. Most of our publicly uh, owned lands, they don't actually do a lot with them. They might have a little park area they keep cleaned out and weed for people to camp in, but that's the minority piece of that property, the vast majority of it. The only thing they do is employ people as wardens and, and, and park stewards and things like that to prevent people from changing anything and leave it alone. So I think the government, in, in managing public lands, has found the one thing that it's pretty well capable of doing, other than building roads, and that is they can actually, if they choose to, keep things the way they are. To be a great thing for our government to maybe take up in some other areas to stop trying to change everything all the time. We kind of like it the way it is here, that's why we live here. So, public lands are important to me, and I, I look for things with national forest, state forest, uh, state game lands, wildlife managed areas, anything like that. The more the better. And the reality is, I can drive about 15 miles from where I live and get into the edge of the the Washita National Forest. And I could, if I wanted to, I'll probably never do this, but I could, if I wanted to, walk from there into Oklahoma without leaving the forest. And to me, that's pretty cool. And it's good for me to know that that land will never be developed because, again, I like to buy a property where I have something known. And knowing that nobody's going to build a giant parcel of condominiums right in that area and change that environment to a big degree, I find to be very helpful. So if you want to take away my libertarian card for that, go ahead. I don't care. Um, That's how I feel. All right. The next one is, is the area livestock friendly? And this is more for you folks that are going to live in kind of the suburban environments or the urban environments. Um, A lot of people have realized now that, hey, you can have a little bitty yard and four or five chickens, and it works out perfectly. In fact... From 1950 back, pretty much everybody did it all over the place in the United States. It was a pretty normal thing to do. But legally, will you be allowed to do it? Will neighbors complain, even if you have the legal right to do it? If you have the ability to shop for property, it's probably going to be easier on you if you just find a place that's going to make the things you want to do uh, easy to do from the beginning rather than get into an environment where you're going to have to try to, again, create change. Right? Find there's so many places where you can already have what you want. Go find one of them. Don't expect to change a community that's already decided the way that it wants to live. Now, with the livestock thing, if you're already there, I suggest you try. I think it's absolutely ridiculous um, that people have areas where you can't have a chicken. Why not? You have a parrot in your house. Oh, I can't have a chicken in my backyard. Uh, As long as they're contained and they're not creating problems and things like that, um, they're a very beneficial part of an ecosystem. Or ducks, or for some people, goats. Um, Barb Harrington who has been on the show. She lives in an area where they can have chickens, and they have chickens for eggs. She really wants a goat. Her community won't allow it. So there are things there that really need to be considered. If you don't want livestock, you know, then you don't really need to worry about that. If you don't want your neighbors to own livestock, go find a place where livestock is not owned by anybody, and it would be generally unacceptable to own them there. I think it's very important for people to think about who and what they are and to seek communities that are at least in some way similar. You don't have to be a conformist or completely uniform. Not a boring place to live. We have a lot of variances in opinions in my place here in Arlington and in my place up in Arkansas right? Um, But those variances are mild and moderate, or even if they're not what I would prefer, I was willing to accept them when I purchased the property. And I understood that I was going into somebody else's community, and that, you know, if I went in my backyard, for instance, and took uh, 22 CB caps and started shooting the squirrels in my backyard in Arlington, I really posed no danger to anybody, but it would violate city ordinance and they would come arrest me, so not going to do it, even though legitimately it really isn't dangerous. People just think it is. But that's the perception of the community. That's the limitation that I accepted when I went there. I think that's really important that we look at. Um, Here's a big one for me. I can't leave it out, because I hate them so much. I will never, ever, 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 and I mean ever, buy a property anywhere, ever, with a homeowners association. I think homeowners associations are the most vile, disgusting, repulsive things to ever enter the free market system, ever. Do I want a law against them? No, that would be anti-free market. But I sure as hell don't want to live there, and I don't want you to either. I don't want to live in a place where I can be doing everything under the grounds of the law, and with some old blue-haired lady gets a hair up her ass, that my car happens to be a late-model car, and it's too old, and it shouldn't be in my driveway, and she doesn't want it there because it bothers her. Or I've decided to put in um, a, a shed, and somebody tells me, well, the roof has to have brown or gray shingles. They can't be gray. Green. Maybe I want them to be green. Maybe I want them to be a lighter color. Or someone says, oh, you can't put up solar panels, because if you put up solar panels, they'll look ugly. Right? I don't want that. And I don't ever want my neighbor to have that much control over the property that I own and bought. When you go into a piece of a property that is controlled by a homeowner's association, you advocate your liberty to yet another governing body. You're already being governed by your local, state, and federal government. And now you're creating a local form of government that supersedes all of those in so many ways. Because the city can say, oh, it's perfectly acceptable to own chickens on your property. And the HOA can say, no, it's not. And they can enforce that. If you buy that property and you buy into that HOA. So if the HOA exists, I will not go. Now, if you want to live in a place like the Stepford Wives where everything's perfectly planned out and you want to control what your neighbor does, go live there. Stay the hell away from me and don't move out near me because we ain't having it where I live. And I'll stay the hell away from you and I won't bring my goats and my ducks and my chickens and my guns to where you live. But personally, I would never do it, and I would really advise that you don't do it because the problem with an HOA is you don't know what you're going to get five years from now. Who's going to take over it? What things are going to be changed? Remember what I said about buying property and not knowing what it might turn into, why I think it's important to buy a place where the changes that are going to occur, by and large, have already happened. Any additional building is unlikely, something like that. Or if there are changes, you're aware of what they're likely to be because you could buy a place you love and then if certain things change, you could turn into a place that you really don't want to be anymore. And that's really sad after you've invested so much time and effort, especially if you've been there maybe five to ten years and you've really turned it into something you really love and then someone else does something that alters that. Well, you got into an HOA. You give somebody else that power from day one. If a consensus majority decides something in an HOA, that's what it's going to be. And the people that get involved with the HOAs are generally the intrusive, annoying type of person. Now, somebody's going to write me and say, I'm on our HOA board, and I'm not that kind of guy, and I'm there to prevent that. Great, I'm glad you're there. Right? Do what you can. But in general, most of the people on these boards don't work. They're older people, they're retired people, they have nothing else to do other than drive around and look, oh, look where his garbage can is. That's against our policy. Write him a little nasty gram and stick it on his mailbox. I would never submit to that. And if I was living anywhere where they decided to create an HOA, I would resist it full tilt. And I would say, it was not this way when I got here, and you would damn well be prying my rifle from my cold, dead hands before I let you enforce it on me if I lived there in advance. Right? You have your little HOA all around me. It's not my property. I'm not signing on to it. And I wish people would stand up and do that when they try to create them. And that's why most of them now are going into new communities, because people are resisting them. But the, the busybodies are getting involved from day one, and, oh, we're going to have this great planned community like a theme park. I don't want anything to do with that. I guess I've believed it enough, but I would never do it, and I just really want to explain to you why that is. Now, there is something called the Land Covenant, or a property covenant, covenant, or a community covenant, and they go by many different names, and I think these are wonderful because they exist as they are and they do not change. So the difference with an HOA is it might be perfectly acceptable to build an external garage, so an unattached garage to your house today. Well, then when somebody actually goes to do it, the HOA can meet and pass a new ordinance that says we no longer allow that. Right, So that was the case when you bought the property, you intended to do it, you went out and hired somebody to help you do the planning, you got an architect involved, you're ready. To, and this actually happened to somebody that I, I know about uh, on a property I lived on. I wasn't even an HOA, but the guy needed a variance. And one person in the neighborhood went down to the township meeting when the guy asked for a variance and said the whole community was against it. And unfortunately, we didn't know about it, so we couldn't go down there and back the guy because nobody else cared. So this lady, because she didn't want a garage to be the first thing people saw when they pulled into her property and she called it something estates. I lived there for three years. I never heard it called something estates in my life. I don't remember what the name was she gave to it. But she didn't want people to realize that she lived on the road with a garage at the end of the road. So with an HOA, you create an additional propensity for things like that to happen. Again, this happened to this individual because he needed a zoning variance to put it a little bit closer to the main road. Right, so without that, he would have been able to just do it. So that's another thing to look at. So what I'm saying though with the HOA is the, the the thing that you were sure you could do can change because new people move in, new people take over, or people evaluate something. They just it wasn't they weren't opposed to it. They never considered it before, and now that you want to do it, they're opposed to it. With The covenant you get rid of that. So we have a, a, a community covenant at our place in Arkansas, that anybody buying a home or building a home there has to abide by it. It's part of the closing paperwork when you buy property or you buy uh, an existing uh, home there. But it's pretty limited. And part of the covenant is it cannot be modified. All right? So it can't be added to or taken away from. And and this is what it is, basically. Uh, No more than one occupied structure per five acres. So that guarantees that nobody's going to cut their five-acre lot in in half and put two houses on it. Um, If it's a mobile home, it can be no more than two years old when it's placed there. It has to be permanently affixed, and the roof must be composite. So it must be a shingle roof, okay, to make that simple. Um, If you need to live in a travel trailer during construction, you have up to two years to do that, and you have up to one year to begin construction. So we had a guy, for instance, that's exactly what he did. He pulled a great big travel trailer in there. He had his well installed. He had his electricity installed, hooked up his travel trailer. He started building his cabinet. And it actually ended up taking him a little more than two years, and nobody gave him any grief because they could see that the project was ongoing. And eventually, he stopped living in his mobile, his trailer, and he, he put it on a different piece of his property. And now that's just his, you know, it's like if somebody comes to visit, there's no problem with them staying there or anything like that. But it's not going to be there as a residence. and that's it. That, that that's pretty much everything that we have for that fifty, you know, fifty family community out there that takes up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres. But that just gives us certain assurances, again, that things won't change. That's why I'm okay with a community covenant or whatever else you want to call it wherever you are. But I am not okay with an HOA. The last thing that I always want people to look at when they evaluate properties is within the, reasons that, within the reason of what you have available to you financially and logistically, what can it become? Because the reality is you can look at any property and go, I can have a giant cabin here. And I, well, if you don't have the money, then it's not going to happen. But within your means... What can that property become? Because the the beauty of buying property is I can buy it financially at one price, and I can put in equity in the form of of labor and in just creativity, and I can increase the value of the property exponentially. Uh, with a minimal financial input and a maximum amount of active input, meaning that uh, it doesn't take a lot of money to put in gardens and trees and uh, irrigation systems and things like that if I use the natural things that are available on the property. But once they're done, I create a property I could have never afforded to purchase the way that it was because I have enough vision when I look at it today, it's kind of barren and empty, to see what I could turn it into. That visionary look at property is the main thing that you need to be able to effectively buy property and turn it into something more than you can afford to buy as is. If you do that, you can really go a long way with a lot less money than people think they need. And I find so many people coming to me telling me how much money they plan to spend, and I look at what they're buying and I go, you don't have to spend this much. So don't do it. What happens is people get emotionally attached to property. I guess that's my last piece of advice today. Don't get emotionally attached to anything until the day after you close on it. Make a methodical, logical decision purely on numbers and on the property itself. It's value to you long term, yes. There's some visionary thing there. But it's not like you already see yourself living there and you get so emotionally attached to it that if you don't get this property, if somebody buys it out under you, you're going to get sick in the stomach. That's a terrible way to be because you won't make a smart assessment. And the last thing is never overpay for property. Never get into some over, you know, owner finance deal or something. Always have a market assessment done by a qualified professional, an appraisal done. If you're going to mortgage it, it's going to happen anyway. No comp- no bank anywhere is going to put a mortgage on a property without a fair market analysis. It's not going to do it. If you're going to do owner financing or something like that, that's fine. Go pay for the fair market analysis. It'll be the best 1000 bucks you ever spent in your life. You've got to know what like properties in the area have sold for in the last 180 days. Without that knowledge, you have absolutely no idea whatsoever what that property is really worth. If you do that, you're never going to overpay for property. You're really not. Um, With the exception of idiots in San Francisco and Philadelphia and New York City and the coastal areas of Florida have been overpaying for property for years and years and years, and even with the depressed market are continuing to do so not talking for you guys out there that are buying my house that I paid $120,000 for, and you're buying a house that's not even as nice as my house, and you're paying $500,000, $600,000 for it. Your communities have lost their freaking mind, and I can't help you. All I can tell you is get the hell out of there and start looking for property where you can actually afford to live because that's the biggest thing I want to leave you with today. When you're looking at property, you're looking for a place to live. Sounds oversimplified, but so many people don't think that way anymore. Is it trendy? Is it this? Is it that? I look at it and I go, do I want to live there? Not stay there, not be there for a while. Do I want to live there? Do I want to make my life there? That used to be the American dream. When people went out and found a home, young couples, right, just married, they didn't go out and buy a little starter home and then buy another one, and then one day when we're 55 we'll buy a dream home that we can't even afford then. They went out and they bought a little home that they could see themselves raising children in. And if they needed the home to get bigger, they made the home bigger. They didn't buy a bigger home. And they put down roots, and they became part of their community, and that's what made America great. And we've lost that. So the biggest thing I think that understanding a new way to look at land can do for you is it can help you take that America back. I say this all the time. We talk about taking our country back. We'll only ever do so much by electing people. I don't care who they are. I don't even care how good they are when they go to Washington. Washington will destroy most of them anyway. We take and we make a difference. And we take our country back by living the way that we think things should be. And to hell with everybody that tells us we can't do that, we're too optimistic, or whatever other bullshit they put up in front of us. We live a prepared lifestyle. We live a simple lifestyle. And we live a better life. And we do that, and then we are an example to those around us. And when you are happy... When you are content and when you have something special, you attract people. That's a law of the universe. I certainly didn't invent it. That's just the way things are. And you can fight it all you want, but that's why you see misery in the faces of people around you all over right now. You go to the mall today where people are doing a last-minute Christmas shopping, and they're not just miserable because they waited to the last minute to buy a present for somebody, and now they're surrounded by people. They're miserable because their place in life forced them into that choice. And a lot of times it has to do with a big giant mortgage hanging over their head and a job they have to keep that they hate. And all other types of misery that come with something they told themselves is a dream of happiness. And it's actually a nightmare. So that's an alternative view of real estate. This is with Jack Spirico. Helps you you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. you can scream, and you can holler in. Doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent